Uh, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Futuristic Podcast to Mark Gerlach on iTunes and be sure to visit us on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for the Futuristic Podcast of Mark Gerlach. I'm here today with my special guest, Ben Proudfoot. Hello. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Mark. Yes, of Breakwater Studios. Weird question to start. Mm. Cliche question, but I'm trying to word it in a different way. If you were stuck on a desert island, yes, and the only thing on the desert island was like an IMAX movie theater, or or you see maybe like a more old fashioned, <laughs> like a lot of old fashioned things, maybe like the the, the Mar Vista or the Vista Theater or something okay. like that, and they can only play one movie. Mm. What would that movie be for you? What would you want it to be? So I'm stuck on this island for a long time. <laughs> yes, and there's nothing else. There's okay. no food. You have to catch your own food, and you have to. Mm hunt and 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 drink water but there's this strangely enough a very modern <laughs> it's a wonderful life <laughs> it's a wonderful life it's a wonderful life yes. you know because i'm probably you know you probably go crazy on that island and want to you know walk into the the ocean and, <laughs> and yeah. i think i think it's a wonderful life would talk me out of it every time plus that it's just a wonderful movie that is a and especially this time of year that is especially very, this yes people yes. watch that movie religiously this time of year i love that movie as well and uh for me it, i think it would be the movie airheads mm. which is a 90s movie which is a movie i grew up with keep you laughing exactly whenever i'm in a down mood that movie mm. for some reason always just brings a smile to my face so for me if it was a funny movie I, it would be dumb and dumber yes Dumb and Dumber for sure. You always get a chuckle out of that. Oh yeah, sometimes more than a chuckle. <laughs> um, I'm so I feel like we have a lot to talk about, and um, I know you have a, a meeting, so we're going to keep it relatively quick. Um, and but there's so many things I want to talk about. So let's talk about first uh, Breakwater Studios. You founded that in 2012. Yeah. How did? Can you tell us like walk us through a little bit of the origin sure. of Breakwater and how that came to be? Yeah. So I. I'm from Nova Scotia in Canada, and um, I, well, I guess you kind of have to, you know, I have to go into this. So I was a magician as a teenager. Yes, and I have, I have questions <laughs> about that, too. I, I, I never know where to start this story. Yeah. I was a magician. How, okay. We, we can, sorry, yeah. We'll come go back. Please. We can come back to that. Yep. Um, and so that's what first brought me to Los Angeles mm-hmm. to join the Magic Castle Junior program. Okay. What, what is that exactly? The Magic Castle Junior program, it's, um, I would call it a, it's like almost like a, it, it's a, it's a club yeah. that you um, have to audition to get into. And um, the membership performs for each other. And work, you workshop your act. And, oh. and different like successful magicians come and lecture. Um, and then there's a group of volunteer magicians who mentor everybody. And, you know, you go and sit around and share your latest, you know, whatever you're working on, your card tricks or whatever. And you support your peers. And, um, you know, as a, as a 12-year-old to, I think, you age out at 18 or something like that. Or maybe it's 21. Um, and and a lot of great magicians have come through that that program over the years. Uh, it's a super supportive and awesome thing. Mm. So I was um, the first international member of the junior program, and that's what first brought me to Los Angeles. And then I went to Las Vegas for the first time, and I did not like it. 
Yeah. Do you want to do you want to wait till the garbage guy is done? You know, I was I was <laughs> or feeling, is this just this like is, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up because people are listening and like what the hell is that? It's just poor <laughs> audio. But now there's someone's doing construction. I think upstairs or next door. Uh-huh. And it's ambience. I, yes, uh, I think it's quieted down. But I overheard that they're going to be done by four. Okay. Uh, just because it's super loud and I can yeah, just you hear you that. tell me you can shut me up and so, say let's wait for that. I think <laughs> I think we're good. If it, uh, yeah, I I like it as a as sort of a soundtrack to our conversation. It's the real it's the real world. It's the real Los Feliz. Sometimes you get fire trucks. Sometimes you get kids I w- screaming. I walked to this interview. By the way, I I am ten minute by foot yes. away, so it was very convenient. <laughs> um. Anyway, so, so the, the magic program. So the magic program. So you asked me how I started Breakwater. So I'll try yeah. to speed through this. Anyway, I was disenchanted with the magic uh, career idea, and. Uh, decide i i watched the video for usc film school and i just said that's that's what i want to do man like i had made little movies with my friends and Mm. i just the concept that making making films directing films was something that was legitimate enough to have a university (laughs) degree attached to it um blew my mind and i just knew i had to come out to la and try to get into that program is it so much different magic in movies or are they, they kind of go hand in hand? It's, it's the trick of the eye le- in some degree, right? Yeah. Like you said, they totally go hand in hand. Um, and when you really do it right and you bring all the elements together seamlessly and you have a singular response, emotional response in the audience. Yeah. It's a magic trick. Mm. Um, and there are so many overlaps between the two, the two crafts. Um, but probably the best thing about filmmaking that magic doesn't generally have is collaboration. Mm. And, um, you know, obviously a, a much wider audience, um, when you have a film, it's a mass audience rather than a, uh, an audience of one or two or, or a few hundred people, your films can, can reach millions. Something that was fascinating, uh, that I heard on, I think an NPR program was about David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear. Yeah. And, uh, what was that? The eight, that was the 80 or early 90. Yeah. You'll have to look at at his hair. You can tell the decade (laughs) and, um, how he did it. And, um, I think a lot of people, they, they had their own opinion of how he did it, but Mm -hmm. I guess the consensus was they, they talked to some people there that he rotated the stage. Do you know anything about this? Are you, are you as a magician, can you not say? No, I shall never violate Okay, okay. the code of the magician. That is right. A very serious <laughs> code. Um, but I, I rewatched the footage and it's, um, I guess, you know, at the time, you, people must have been at the edge of their seats, you know, just like. Oh, yeah. How is he going to do this? No, um, I mean, I mean, magic on TV used to be a really um, wonderful uh, thing that has since evolved into you know, street magic and sort of like adopted the documentary style to lend it. Um, you who's, know. who's the, is it David Blaine? David Blaine. David Blaine, right? He does yeah. mostly street magic. Yeah. David Blaine sort of revolutionized. Uh, I mean, he, he brought magic back in many ways in the, you know, I guess that was probably like around when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old um, and the millennium. And yeah, he brought, he brought magic back to the world and made it cool. And yeah, and um, I, 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 there are probably literally millions of people who who have studied magic mm-hmm. who attribute their beginnings to David Blaine and his television show. 
because it just was like you know it's like early days of like youtube and go on there and watch it over and over and over and over again how how does he do it yeah these crazy reactions and you know that was me yeah, I, I, I don't want to uh, harp on the magic, you know, because I know you do so <laughs> yeah, many things, sure. but it's so fascinating to me. I loved magic as a kid. I had like a little magic kit. I had cards that were numbered, like marked, yeah. so you could see, like you knew which card was which by sure, where yeah. the mark was. Uh, and so it's just fascinating to me. Were you creating, You were so you were creating your own tricks. Yeah, you know, and, uh, I, I, I got set off on the right foot. So when I started doing magic, I... I I saw a magician down on the boardwalk in Halifax. It was a busker's festival every mm-hmm. summer. And uh, his name was Patrick Drake. And he was awesome. He was amazing. The audience loved him. And I approached him after and asked him if he gave lessons. And he said no. And I kept bugging him, kept bugging him. Please, please. <laughs> and finally, he agreed. Okay, I'll, I'll give you one lesson. And um, we made a deal that, that he would teach me presentation. And I, it was my job to like learn the tricks. Mm-hmm. And we had a, you know, he, he mentored me as a magician and, and as a person. And he was going to the Canadian championship that summer. I had just really started. And he said, you should come and compete. It's a good experience for you. And I didn't really know much about magic and hadn't really been indoctrinated into the so-called classics of magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything that I created for my act at the Canadian championship was totally, I just made it up. I mean, I just wow. sort of like from stuff that was lying around my basement like old diet coke bottles and whatever <laughs> how old were you at this time of um i was 14 wow and um and so i went and i did my act and and i won and the reason why i won was not because i was the most technically sound magician but because i got 10 out of 10 on originality and the world champion of magic was there jason latimer and he said you learned a great lesson today be the best of one you know, if you can do something that's totally original, you'll you'll beat everybody and you'll stand out because you you're not competing against anyone. Mm. You know, you're not comparable to anyone else, so you're you're the best of one. And so that kind of like set off my magic career as, you know, trying to do something original that no one had seen before, um, which is a lot more legwork than, you know, perfecting the the classics and some well actually i don't know if i'd say it's more legwork but it's just different work yeah um and so that you know my little short magic career between age 14 and 17 was was characterized by trying to invent new tricks and looking back they probably weren't that exciting but it was a lot of fun and it brought me to los angeles so and i I still have many good friends and mentors from from that world so i'm grateful for the experience yeah so you moved to la and you said you were 17 yeah so i i didn't move to la for the magic i would do i started a business in halifax at 17 at at uh, uh, 15 wow doing cocktail parties as a magician Wow. And because I was the Canadian champion, sleight of hand <laughs> magician, I could command Magic you know, World Champion, one hundred and fifty dollars yeah. an hour, uh, and you know I'd go for an hour, and you know cobble together some money, and you know um, would save up a bunch of money and go down to Los Angeles for these meetings, and yeah. I'd be able to do that like three or four times a year. And um, so, so you were performing at cocktail parties at the age of fifteen, yeah, rest- restaurants. Wow. Um, there's a restaurant in Halifax called Stainer's Wharf and I was a staple there on Friday and Saturday nights for tips. You know, it was actually, it was an awesome thing to do as a young man because it, I actually had horrible stage fright as a teenager 
And, you know, going up to a table of strangers, interrupting them, ingratiating yourself <laughs> immediately. Making the person's watch disappear yeah. or something. Yeah, totally. Making them laugh, <laughs> right. making them like you. Right. And then making them want to give you five bucks um, and do that thousands of times when you're extremely impressionable as like yeah. a 16 year old um it was it's very useful that's very a lot useful. of courage yeah for any any age I, you gotta kind of yeah. psych your i mean i yeah. was for for probably six months the first six months i was sick and even still like going into situations like that where i know i'm gonna have to talk to new people it makes yeah. me feel sick it takes me back to that magician days of of just dreading going out there and having to you know, perform magic tricks for people. Mm. <laughs> this you're, this is like deep. Now you're into my deep psyche now. <laughs> That's the goal of this show. <laughs> like anyone deep wants thoughts, to know. Yeah. Um, so, um, so you're, you're performing magic and then you move uh, to LA. You're an entrepreneur at, at this incredibly young age of 15. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sort of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess on yeah. a mini, mini scale. Sure. Yeah. And um, so wh- what's the city like for you at, at that time? Well, this you mean L.A.? Yeah. So L.A., I mean, I... So I had a friend, Aaron, who was also in the program, and his family very graciously hosted me every time I came, mm-hmm. and they lived in um, in Valencia. So I would... I can't believe my parents let me do this. So I would fly <laughs> alone from Halifax right. to L.A. I would get out. I would have booked a super shuttle, and I would go in the super shuttle and it would take like two and a half hours to like wind your way because you drop everybody else off. I was mm. by far the furthest north and um, go up the McBean Parkway. And, you know, that was my experience of L.A. Driving from LAX to Valencia and then in Aaron's car to the Magic Castle and back. That's all I knew. <laughs> what was the um, where you grew up? What was that town like? Com- yeah, Halifax yeah, is kind of like a. Um, it's it's sort of similar vibes to Boston. Yeah, I, I heard it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, I just no, never no, made my way up there. Nova Scotia is there's no doubt it's one of the most yeah. beautiful places. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but <laughs> I mean truly like environmentally world class um, spots, and the people are really wonderful and warm mm-hmm. and welcoming. The seafood is the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the locks, yeah, smoked locks, sure, smoked salmon, salmon right? lobster, scallops, yeah. you know, whatever. Whatever you want from the sea, it's bountiful up there and very fresh. Um, and, you know, Halifax is Halifax is an interesting place because it used to actually be sort of the most successful and powerful part of Canada, um, you know, 100 or more years ago. All the big banks were there. And then the, the power and the wealth sort of transferred west to, um, you know, upper Canada and, and eventually the West part of Canada. So it has a little bit of like, it used to be uh, an exciting place and it used to be a wealthy place. And, you know, that's part of the struggle as a Nova Scotian is, especially a Nova Scotian who, who left and participated in the brain drain mm-hmm. of like, you know, how, what's, what's next for this place. Yeah. Um, but Nova Scotia has a really strong and interesting history that I'm constantly sort of grappling with and involved with, but it's a beautiful place and, and I call it home. Nice. You go back to... to yeah, we have an office there. Yeah. I actually spend a lot of time in, in Halifax yeah. because we have a lot of projects there. Nice. And my parents are there. Nice. Um, so I end up probably spending half my time there. Nice. Yeah. And the other half here in LA. So was that a different world for you? Like, I know you just had this very direct yeah. route of, you know, the airport <laughs> to the magic Yeah, I mean, castle. it's totally, I mean, like yeah. totally on its ear. I yeah. mean, 
you know, Los Angeles in in all the ways I love it is also just like an asphalt jungle, you know, yeah. so as you know, it's just like strip malls as far as you can see when right. you're driving from LAX. So it was just like and Nova Scotia is very, you know, there's you can't it's hard to look somewhere without seeing a tree or a, a or grass or nature of some kind or mm. the ocean. So to me, LA was just this like crazy urban, like sprawl that just like went on forever. And, you know, um, the magic world is sort of a skeezy world with, you know, some very warm and welcoming and friendly people and some, some sort of weird people that like never made it as an actor, but they're a big deal in the magic world. You know, like it's kind of like, um, it's a weird high school, um, community at Mm -hmm. times as well. But the lucky thing was the junior program was not that way and was, you know, really supportive and wonderful. And that's where I spent most of my time. That's cool. Yeah. You definitely see interesting things here. Yesterday I saw uh, Ron Perlman mm-hmm. dancing to Beyonce in an ice cream shop, which there you was go. interesting. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't say that for every city on the planet. No, uh, but definitely an interesting place here. And I see what you're saying. So that, you know, there's um, different comedians that, you know, that they're, they, it's, it wasn't a world you saw yourself in long term. Like, yeah, you yeah, know, the, the thing that broke the camel's back was I went to Las Vegas for the first time. Right. And like, you know, I'm not a I'm not a religious person. I wouldn't even say I'm, you know, I'm particularly opinionated or judgmental of, of other people. But when I got off the plane in Las Vegas, I, I had won the international championship uh-huh. and I was invited to like do this conference with the people like David Copperfield's people. Yes. Which was very exciting. And I got off the plane and there was all those people, all those old women on the, um, you know, one-armed bandits, the the gambling machines. And yeah. they looked so tired yeah. and unhappy. And I, it just made me feel sick. It and seems very dismal, that world, <laughs> the casino. I saw, actually saw Copperfield in Vegas. Uh, yeah, me at too. one of those shows. And you know what? I mean, David Copperfield, I mean, when he's good, he's fantastic yeah but when he's phoning it in nothing is more sad and i have i have been to i went to see him with you know and it's i i I can imagine it is hard to be david copperfield expectations are so high and you're just you're doing it the same thing every night but it was it was sort of heartbreaking to see him phone it in and i can't see how even with every effort how can you do something the same day way every day and make it fresh but I was very disenchanted by Las Vegas, and I just couldn't see myself devoting my life to this place. Yeah, doing a residency at the Bellagio or something. I mean, I, it may sound exciting to yeah. someone else. I just was like, it was just too fleeting for me. I just couldn't imagine myself committing my one, my one life to this place. I just couldn't. I couldn't wrap my head around it, and I just totally abandoned all my dreams like right there right on the spot that weekend in las vegas is that where you have to is that sort of the mecca for musicians uh magicians rather if you want to be a magician you have to yeah i think head to vegas to make it it happen it is a mecca i mean the magic castle is also a mecca Mm -hmm. um you know magic magicians i think you know there's a they're they're everywhere right they're they're small businesses everywhere if you want to be a millionaire magician sure you got to go to vegas or you know, Tahoe or, you know, rare, res, you know, rare spots around the world. But, you know, there's a, only a handful of those people. But when you're a young kid aspiring to be the best in the world, Las Vegas is where you got That's where you got to go. Yeah. Not to, uh, I hope it's not taboo to say this as a magician. I don't yeah. mean to, to uh, but I, when I saw Copperfield, 
uh, I was with some friends of mine, and the trick was there was these bouncing balls, and then whoever got the ball yeah. was called up to go on stage, and then the trick was that he was making them disappear from... This was like a long time ago, so I'm trying to remember. I think it was the, from the front of the stage to the back of the room. Yeah. But they asked him... It's as, called 13. That illusion is called 13. Oh, you know. Okay. Yeah. I'm not familiar. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but if any magicians are listening. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but what I thought was a little bit... Um, it seemed a little wonky was that he was asked, because he told us after the fact, that he was asked if he was an actor or if he was a real person. Mm-hmm. And then they separated, I guess, where the actors and the real people went. Hmm. Um, so that kind of just kind of pulled the veil back a little bit on the trick. It just didn't seem, maybe that was a mistake. I don't know if that was. Say that again. Uh, so he, got, there was, the room was full of these bouncing. Like, yeah, like an balls. exercise ball. Yeah. Yeah. So whoever landed had the ball to randomize end. who got selected right yeah and he was one but i think he might have because he was a little bit inebriated from a long weekend in vegas might have stripped the ball from another person because he wanted uh. to be a part of this act okay so maybe he was maybe that was intentionally supposed to go to that other person uh. i don't know um that but- knowing that trick that is it is random Okay. It just sounds like a drunk guy trying to ruin the trick. He very well could have been that guy. And um, so what happened was they, as they left to go, I guess, on stage. Yeah. And then they, I want to say, I'm trying to remember. They sit in chairs. It. But then at some point they directed them like behind the stage and as was like grouping them in terms of actors and real people. Huh. And, and, then, and you're seeing this in the show? I was no, no, no. I wasn't seeing this. He was telling us after the fact that this is what had happened to him after he got the ball and was called up on stage. Oh, oh, oh. Because oh. we're like, you know, how how did it work? Like, because we're oh, you talked to him afterwards. Yeah, oh. he, was my, he was my friend. We oh, were staying together. Oh, 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 oh. At the Your friend hotel. was inebriated. My friend was inebriated. Oh, I yes. thought you just saw. Uh, sorry, no, no, sorry no, no, for no. calling I'm, him I'm, the drunk guy who. No, 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 that's okay. I'm, I'm sure I'm not <laughs> explaining this properly. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. He, your friend participated in the trick, and he told you how the trick was done. Yes. And there were actors involved, and they yes. were separated. Got it. Yes. Yes. So yeah, yes. what was your question? Um, just I, your experience. No, I was just kind of relaying the experience, just in terms of like it didn't seem because it was not a cheap ticket either. That was like a hundred and some odd dollar yeah, ticket, no, and this big. was a long time ago. Um. It just seemed a little wonky for David Copperfield, like the master of all magicians, to you know ask the person who was selected, like, "Are you an actor or are you actually part of the audience?" You know what I mean? Huh. Then separate them. It, it just all I was saying is it kind of pulled the veil back a little bit. Yeah, like no, we were totally. surprised that it was they were so blatantly obvious. Yeah, you know, him. I always say you know that trick in particular is interesting because somebody there's a it's called a run around. Okay, when there's a trick that involves somebody running from the stage around to the back of the stage and they appear at the back of the at the hall mm. and uh, somebody tripped and fell and hurt themselves on the on the run around. Oh man. Um, and so Copperfield was like called to the stand and had to explain like, in a court of law. How to, oh. This is within the past couple of years, how to explain how the trick was done, which was, which was news in the magic world. Um, but you know, I always say to people who are interested in how magic tricks work, you know, it's like a trumpet. Just enjoy the music. Don't ask how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> That's, <You know>? great. <laughs> That's great. Um, so are you still interested in like does magic tricks still come into your head where you're like have an idea for a trick or do you are you still inspired by magic or i am inspired by magic i mean the cool thing about magic is um it it taught me a great it taught me how to think um because you work backwards from an impossible goal so you say okay you know 
in magic magicians call tricks effects so you're thinking okay what effect i i want this you know there's a little um succulent plant here Mm -hmm. right so i want the effect to you to be that for that thing to to float six inches above the table and i'll put a handkerchief over it then it's going to disappear that's what I want the effect to be. Okay. So then the next step is for you to think, about well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> right. Which right? I would imagine is probably the most difficult. Yeah. Step. But it's also like the most fun part, <laughs> right? Like, okay. So thinking about your vantage point, where mm-hmm. your two eyes are with your two eyes there, what can you see? What can't you see? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, is it going to be, you know, something, something like a string above it? lifting it is it something that's rigid from behind that's holding it is are, am i only going to give you the memory that it floated mm. even though it never floated at all it just gave you the feeling that it did and in your memory it will have floated six inches and disappeared but really it only looked like it floated an inch you know so and may, maybe the succulent doesn't appear to be a succulent at all right so to me i think about that all the time with a film or even in business yeah or in life you think of an impossible thing and then you think about what would it take? What would it take to achieve that thing? Right? What would it take to build a company of a hundred people that, mm. you know, was modeled after the studio system of the 1930s? Well, if, if somebody were to actually do that, what would it take? And then go wild from there. That's how magicians think. And, you know, sure. There's some tried and true ways of doing it that, you know, are kind of off the shelf, but the best magicians, they they think in new and novel ways about how to achieve that thing, which to everyone else is impossible in the first place. Mm. So it all starts with the idea and then yeah. the process of how you're going to make that come to fruition. Yeah, basically like the only fixed thing is what the end result is. Mm. That, that is the only fixed part. Everything else, everything else you can change. Everything else you can, you know, create and modify. Um, but you just need that one fixed end result. That's a great way to think about things, I think. I think so. I think that's a great segue as well into uh, um, Breakwater Studios. So you went to USC. Yes. Uh, and so what about, were you always a film person growing up? You are always a film person? Or what spoke to you about going and studying film there? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I was always intrigued by like the special effects. Right which was kind of very similar to magic. Mm -hmm. So like I loved like Robert Zemeckis and Mm -hmm. Spielberg and you know, I, I was really into the special effects. I remember seeing Dr. Doolittle with my mom and how did they make the animals do that? And like puppets. And you know, we waited in the credits to see what the title of the person was called. I said, Oh, that's what I want to do when I grew up. So I I was very interested in like how people used this, you know, this tool of, cinema to make me feel a certain way or right. to bring me awe or emotion from some unknown place. It mm-hmm. was, it was a, as close to a religious experience as I, I could get. And, um, so I was a big fan of movies and watched a lot of them and, you know, was block, a blockbuster kid and, um, you know, made them in school, like with my best friend, we would make little movies late at night with his like parents camera and edit them together on Windows Movie Maker. And you so know. is this like camcorder cassette or is it or am I dating myself? Is this? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I remember the first the first thing we did. It was my friend Graham had like a Sony camcorder and like we couldn't figure out how to import the footage 
onto the computer like we couldn't figure <laughs> it, out it used to be a serious like process oh yeah i mean you'd there. have to like yeah play you know and then do like you know some kind of like layback like to tape pro you know tape <laughs> from tape process and it's a like, magic trick in itself yeah and i just remember being so confused and i couldn't figure out how to do this it was so frustrating and then uh, my friend had a camera that had like an SD card and we could import that into Windows Movie yes, Maker. And then the world opened, the world <laughs> of editing and music and titles opened up. And so we made lots of little sort of like funny little shorts and kind of like Mr. Bean inspired things. And, um, you know, that sort of culminated. I made a documentary in my senior year of high school with my friend Jonathan. That was kind of like the graduation video. And it was like an ambitious production with a helicopter shot and stuff that we figured out how to how to finance and do. And we interviewed all these students, and that was great. And then I I did not get into the production program at USC. I came undeclared. They gave me a great scholarship to their credit, but they did not let me into the film school. Mm. Never let me into the production program as hard as I tried. So I got into the critical studies program, which was the theory program. Okay, and with that lovely chip on my shoulder that they never let me in the production program, I just started making films outside of school. Mm. And that sort of parlayed into into starting the business in um, in 2012. So that was the ambition that it was like, I, I got to do this. I got to... Yeah, I think yeah. the real ambition was it was, was a combination of ambition that whatever I was going to do, I wanted to go all the way. Mm. That like, you know, I have one life and I'm just going to do, do whatever it is is that like top thing. And um, it was really a frustration when I came to Los Angeles and realized that the film industry wasn't this wonderful family of people that all had jobs at the Disney lot <laughs> um, or, you know, we're yeah. all sort of buzzing around Robert Zemeckis or, right. or Steven Spielberg or whatever, that, that those worlds were rare and also sort of like split apart after every movie. And, you know, there there wasn't a lot of continuity or family or, or community like there like I thought there would be. And the reason is, is because that's expensive. It's expensive to sort of overhead, you know, a big studio like that. You, It's much easier on the business for everyone to be sort of, to, for the core fixed cost to be small and everything else to be variable. And it used to be that way because it makes sense to have everybody together. But then when, you know, MBAs and lawyers took over the film business in the 1960s, you know, they sent all those people home. So that's why most movies today, with a few exceptions, are made, you know, from, um, you know, apartments like this, right? You're, the composer is working out of their home uh, and they might never meet the sound designer. Mm -hmm. um, and everything is just sort of shuttled by, at least especially an independent film, shuttled by, you know, G drives around, you know, and Ubers around Los Angeles. And it just seems to me no way to make a movie. So that frustration um, led me to start Breakwater in the image of where I wanted to work, which was a camp, a creative campus where everybody was physically in the same space. So would you say you're influenced by sort of the, the golden era of Hollywood? And like the old, <laughs> I think you could say that. Yeah. So, and, and also your office uh, we were talking about before we started is in Walt Disney's original building right can you tell us a little bit about the the history yeah. of that and how you ended up in that building absolutely yeah so so when disney when walt disney came out here in the early 1920s his uncle lived on kingswell in los Feliz, a few doors down mm -hmm. from our building and um him and him and roy took out the part of the 
think it was called the Hollymont Realty Company office on the corner there. And that was the Disney Bros studio. And they did a lot of the Alice comedies and some early animation work. And I believe Mickey Mouse was first drawn in that building by by uh, by works um and this is like 1923 um there's a lot of good stories that surround the the king's well spot and even to this day if you go to california adventure there's a right at the front of california adventure there's a um place where you can buy film like a kodak disposable cameras called king's well camera mm. um so he, that's where he was that's where he started and then you know, he left and they went to the studio in Hyperion. That's the Gelson's now. Mm-hmm. And then uh, built the studio in Burbank. So over the years, you know, um, that that um, building has has housed various other shops and things. It's a it's a photocopy and notary shop now. And I was reading a book about Disney that my friend Tony gave me. And it said um, that his first office was 4655. I don't think it was 4655, but it was it was like 4652 or some other address. Kingswell, and I looked it up in my phone, and it was right next to a restaurant that I liked up Vermont, uh, Fred 62. So I said, oh, next time I go to Fred 62, I'll go look at that building. And I went, and I saw there was offices upstairs, and I went to the violin shop sort of pretending to be wanting to buy a violin, but really <laughs> sniffing around to, how do you get an office up here? And he said, Jimmy is the guy and he owns the Dresden. You go talk to him. So I did. And there were no vacancies. And I left my number. And sure enough, but a month later, January 2012, Jim called me and said, hey, an office opened up. And so I took the leap. That's cool. Yeah. Do, you, are, do you like the Dresden as well? I love that place. And it feels oh, like yeah. a very old timey place. That Oh, the Dresden's that, wonderful. And yeah. um and it's it's really great that they've kept it the same. Yeah. Um, you the know. food is good. And the, the drinks are great. And the drinks are great. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those spots that you hope never goes away. Yeah. Um, so that's so cool that you ended up in that spot, which seems like it has such positive, like, uh, just vibes that it just, like, kind of glows with good energy somehow. Yeah, I think, you know, Walt Disney has a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of faults. And he, he made a lot of mistakes, yeah. but he also got a lot of things right. Like many things that you could easily get wrong, he got right. And, and you know, one of the things that's most inspiring about Disney and Roy, his, his brother, was that they were, so, they were often on the brink of it all falling apart. Mm. So many times they were saved by, you know, the United States government hiring them to create propaganda or, you know, the Bank of America saved the Disney studio many times on multiple occasions and just like if you if you really dig into the story of the disney studio it's not this massive revenue generating you know thing like it is today it was many times on the brink of just totally falling apart and it was because you know they were trying to build something and they were leveraging everything to the hilt every time to push it and i just find that inspiring that you know even even somebody who's like so solidified in the firmament of successful producers and creative visionaries was so often on the on the brink of total disaster. Yeah, well, people don't think of that when you think of Disney. You think of this huge successful yeah. company, but you don't think of the early days of yeah. struggling and failing. And, totally. Yeah, you know, and it's the know. same with anything. Like yeah. you know, like I, what, we've been working on a project that um, takes place in like the early days of America 
when Thomas Jefferson was in France trying to like curry favor and get Europeans to move to this new place. Yeah. You know, I think that's a very exciting, you know, the first third of any biography is the most interesting part. <laughs> How did they get from zero up to speed? And it's thrilling because it's always on the verge of, you know, falling apart. And also there's, you know, you're constantly at stories where if you choose A, it goes this way. And if right. you choose B, it goes this way. And you know, they choose A right. and you think, man, the what fork if, in the road, which yeah, direction would you go? What if it was Mortimer Mouse? Right. Right. <laughs> what, if, what if it was something different? Right. How would, right. how would today be different? Um, so I don't know. I, when you look at my bookshelf, all the biographies, I read the first third and then I become disinterested. <laughs> Uh, it's so refreshing too. Like it, it seems very important to you the relationships that you build, and you also when you're talking about making a movie, how important it is that everyone's under one roof and everyone's working together. And like you, you had mentioned that's something that doesn't really happen nowadays with uh, email and you know Skype totally. and stuff like that. Why is it, uh, uh, just from from your perspective? Why is that so important that everyone have that connectivity? Um, well, I think. I mean, okay, so cinema's pretty young, right? It's like yeah. 100 years old, a little more than that now. Um, so if let's say cinema was invented today and somebody said, okay, we're going to take photography and we're going to do that 24 times a second. So it's going to be moving. It's going to be capturing things, okay? And somebody's going to be in charge of the camera. Actually, 10 people are going to be in charge of that. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then we're going to basically take all the elements of theater actors and sets and makeup and all that and and we're going to have everything in front of the camera totally created okay so you're with me now yeah and then and then we're going to use microphones to record their voice and then and then after the fact we're going to have a composer like who does concerts he's going to write the music to be perfectly timed to everything so that it sort of creates this interesting photographed theater experience mm. and and then and then we're going to go and we're going to you know when the guy breaks his leg we're going to use the sound of like a celery thing you know and it's and <laughs> we're going to put that all together all into one all perfectly timed and perfect and the goal is to take the audience on like a like a two hour story right. that just like you know makes them laugh and cry and then we're gonna put them all in a big audience together and then we're gonna do, rinse and repeat and do this all over the world all the time if you were explaining that to someone and you're explaining it to a composer and somebody who's interested in radio and somebody who is interested in theater you know it is hard enough. If you strip cinema down, it is incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. It is so hard to take all of these elements and pull it together and, and try to make someone feel something. Mm -hmm. Why would you ever split those people up and say, do this by email and phone? I yeah. mean, it's insane. It's stupid. Like, we should all be sitting around the table saying, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? How can we take this art form and accomplish this? It's a miracle. You know, and that's why... I think a lot of people that love cinema, when you go to see a great movie by, you know, Spielberg or Catherine Bigelow or anybody who has a real handle on the art form, why it's so incredible to experience that is because you just know how complex it is and how hard it is to be able to achieve something. And really, we're just at the beginning of knowing how to use movies. So... To me, it's like you need that mission control. You need everybody around the same table because it's just like it's one of the hardest things a group of people can do is yeah. make a good movie. And uh, so it sounds like it, it kind of captures a human, more human element to it, would you say? Like yeah, it's just, not as um, 
as uh, kind of distanced or kind of uh, it lacks person personality face to face contact if you're emailing. It's just it's just a it's it's a it just requires more than you can give. Mm. So just like imagine flying like twenty planes in for- formation, but like each button was controlled by a different person in a different country. Like right. like what are we talking about yeah. here? Like the only way you could do that is if you just said, "Hey, buddy." press button 14 at 1 14 p.m. Mm. and everything will be all right yeah which is unfortunately what happens to movies now right hey just mimic the temp music mm. mimic the temp music as best you can hey just cut through coverage you know just make sure just make sure that the whatever's in the script is in the movie or whatever right and you know you have to rely you can't you can't really dig into it and say, what are we doing here without looking at somebody in the whites of their eyes and saying, what are, what are we trying to accomplish here? Yeah. You know? And I think, I think that's lost unless somebody in a position of leadership can pull everybody together. Um, it, this is, this is an art. You have to bear your soul. And even then, if you're successful in bearing your soul and being excellent at your craft, you may not be successful in creating anything that's entertaining or interesting. So, you know, I guess that's my opinion. It is so hard. It is so hard. Why put any barriers between you and doing that thing? Mm. Uh, the, the word humanist storytelling is, I think, on the description on the website, on yes. your website. Yeah. Can you explain what that means when you're trying to say by humanist storytelling? Because it I think I understand, but I was just hoping you could. Yeah, clarify. I mean, my, I mean, it's a, it's, um, it's a, it's a word that to me um, represents sort of a, a philosophy that um, the power resides with the individual. Mm. So, um, you know, I guess you could contrast it to, you know, um, religious belief, but you know, the idea is that the the power of someone to overcome an obstacle or to affect change lies with within each of us Mm -hmm. and you know i i I didn't set out to make humanist films but um it's a word that's often been used to describe the films that i make Mm -hmm. and uh and i like that i believe in that i i would call myself a humanist um sort of a funny word i why aren't we all (laughs) but um yeah i mean a lot of our films are focused on an individual and their their internal story um one of your films won an emmy it won a los angeles area emmy los angeles area yeah (laughs) different Uh, you know some people you know an emmy is an emmy my friends were oh my god ben you're on your way to an EGOT. And I was like, well, you know, it's a regional Emmy. Not to put down regional Emmys, but um, yeah, that was exciting. Montage. Yes. Uh, great composers and the piano won, won an Emmy. Gloria Chang, whose project that was from the beginning, we helped her finish it. So Gloria Chang, the, the kind of the crux is, uh, is it a half dozen composers present her with music yep. that she plays? And, and sort of the challenge is writing for solo piano is that the yeah so the the concept of it was gloria um challenged these composers to who are all film composers Mm. um to write pieces for solo piano and for a composer that's pretty much the hardest thing you can do it's it's like it's you're naked right there's no 
big string section. There's none of your tricks and tools, none of the smoke and mirrors that you can hide behind are available to you. It's just the piano. That's it. And um, so it's an exploration of of some of the greatest film composers on the planet. Mm. I mean, not some of, like the greatest yeah. film composers on the planet. Um, John Williams, Randy Newman, Alexandre Desplat, you know, Michael Giacchino, Don Davis, uh, Bruce Broughton, all brought their artistry to the to the piano and the and the film is a you know half an hour film about the process of recording it and the different challenges and you know different musings on on this so it's you know when I met Gloria and she told me about this project and she needed help finishing it I just was I mean I'm such a film music nerd I just had to I had to help her finish it and um uh, Moni Salazar who edited it and our whole team who worked on it did just a fabulous job turning it into a really polished um, and entertaining piece. So it was exciting to, to help her finish that. Uh, the black and white choice, why, whose kind of idea was that to, to go with the black yeah, and white? Yeah, it's one of those late night things. I think um, <laughs> there was actually, it was like a technical error in, in the an interview with John uh, Williams. And kind of like, oh, that looks that it, looks cool. No, it, well, the technical error was like just making the color footage hard to work with. Okay. And we were like, oh, man, because, you know, we are so particular you know, we shoot everything ourselves. We, we don't use stock footage unless we absolutely, you know, mm-hmm. we're like very meticulous. And so this footage is like, ah, oh, like we can't put this in the movie. Like our, you know, it's like how we, how we're playing with a plane with it. It just like didn't look good. And Steven, our colorist said, you know, it would look good if it was black and white. <laughs> and we laughed. And then I said, huh, well, what? What would yeah. that look like? You know, it's like one of those moments. So, you know, turned black and white. And then, you know, we added a little sort of like soft glow to it. And then it was like, well, this is kind of, you know, it's the piano and the black and white keys. Yeah. And, you know, it sort of takes the takes the onus off of the cinematography and li- really lets you listen to the music. Mm. So it just was one of those choices that, you know, one of those roads we took that I think really worked out well. But it was kind of one of those late night crazy ideas. So it was like a kind of a, a, ha- a happy mistake, sort of. Like yeah, mistake. I mean that's the best. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. the best when that happens. Yeah, I think I think like probably eighty percent of my good ideas are just you know jokes or somebody else quips something or yeah. you know something goes the wrong way and somebody says actually that's kind of good. Yeah, you and know, it looks beautiful. I mean, I, I watched um, thanks most of it and I was just blown away um, that and the music is is incredible um it's it's beautiful the music yeah no i and very interesting like john williams work is very surprising like super atonal jazzy strange hemiola you know like i I very unusual we wouldn't expect it like not the john williams we know but he he came from jazz he was a jazz pianist um before his his film work interesting yeah i i'm so out of touch with that world of classical music um Mm. but it's it's very um it welcomes in people with musical backgrounds and tastes of all, all sorts. You have a, you can have an appreciation for that film. Yeah, uh, no, totally. And, and classical music is really the basis of film music as yeah. we know it. And that's changing and evolving and it should. Um, but you know, that's, that is, um, you know, some of the greatest composers of their time. Yeah. Eric Wolfgang Korngold and these folks who were big concert, um, composers in Europe who left. Yeah. Um, because of the, of the war, um, they came to Hollywood and they were, you know, many of the people who, who established what we now know as, you know, film music, film Mm. score. 
It's a fascinating history. And then PBS picked it up and it aired on PBS. Yeah, PBS, yeah. SoCal picked it up. Mm. It aired and um, uh, got nominated and, and won the Emmy for Best Independent Programming. How do you get an idea for a film? Are, are you writing scripts? Who's who's turning out scripts? Um, I don't know if anyone's turning out scripts in Los Angeles. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Probably right. your neighbors probably yes, has a yes. great, wonderful screenplay that you know just you have you know, to read it. The option was is just over at Gersh. Um, the, the well, we do mostly what we do is documentaries, right? Right. Um, so they're not written um, typically. But you do have script uh, scripted section as well on your website. Yes. Okay. We do ha- we do do scripted projects. Okay. Um, and you know it depends on the project. There's different yeah. writers for different projects. Sure. Occasionally we'll get a project and then hire a writer that we think is appropriate, um, and you know would do a great job with that piece. Or mm. sometimes a writer will have an idea or have a script written or an idea that you know we want to um, get behind. Um, but you know, we're in Los Angeles, you know, if, if you have a passion for writing screenplays, you probably moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, so we have a really great base of people that we work with on the writing side. And a lot of the, uh, is it dinner with Fred? Yeah. Yes. Dinner with Fred. That was beautifully, Thanks. beautifully shot. Yeah. Thanks. I watched that as well. It's my first, that was like my first movie. Uh, really? Yeah. I mean, oh, wow. not my first, first movie ever, but the first time like, okay, you know, there's a full crew and we're going to do it and it's going to be a movie shot wonderfully. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a fun project is my grandfather's story, true story. And, um, I mean, this is what, eight or nine years ago we made that film. Um, and, um, yeah, we made it over the summer in my junior year. That's, uh, are you influenced more with, older style stories or stories from the past you, you know, I seem to do uh stories that are you know kind of a, a glimpse back in time History, yeah not necessarily like new iphone technology <laughs> social media like you know what i mean yeah um, and it makes me very unattractive to a lot of marketing agencies <laughs> i think i think um yeah i you know it's like it, i i hesitate to use the word word nostalgia yeah um but I think I just I'm I'm very drawn to what came before. Mm-hmm. I I couldn't explain to you why. Um I think I think stories especially scripted projects that are based on history um to me are more rewarding because you're you're lending importance to what happened. Um and you're spreading a story that's that's important. And also, if you watch that movie and you're inspired, you can walk away and say, wow, somebody actually did that. Yeah. You know, people actually, you know, put a man on the moon when nobody knew how to do that. Right. Or whatever. Um, to me, that like the, the, having a story that's grounded in reality just adds this whole other layer of interest. And, you know, if I can go on Wikipedia and read about the actual people who did that and then buy somebody's book about it and you know go talk to somebody who you know meet somebody at a dinner party you know like to me it just makes it uh so much more of a rich rewarding um experience in one's life um knowing that 
um, it actually occurred. Now, not to take away from something that's totally fabricated and um, just imaginative and off the wall and has nothing to do with anything that ever happened because those can be some of the most powerful stories Mm. and resonant stories. Um, But for me, I am am drawn to, to true stories. So you're doing the research and talking to people. Is yeah. that is that sort of investigative work appealing to you? Do you enjoy? Oh doing yeah. That? yeah. I mean, I mean, probably similar to to um, the fun you have as a as a podcast host. You know, having the license to ask any question you want. I mean, that's that's better than a license to kill. I mean, <laughs> I mean to to ask any question you want. I mean, my mom. My mom is a sociologist. And, you know, so she she takes the point of view that everything is interesting Mm -hmm. and everything is worth investigating. And I think I inherited that. She's also very nosy. She's a nosy (laughs) person. And I think I inherited that. And, you know, I'm curious. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm curious. What's the story here? Right. And I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to understand all sides of it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially with my history as a magician, I can really tell when people are are lying or obfuscating or, or not telling me something. Mm-hmm. And usually there's some really good stuff in that. Um, so to me, like investigating and interviewing people is super interesting because, you know, you're on a path, you're on a journey through their life and, and, you know, it's just human to human and navigating that. And, you know, it's hugely rewarding to, cause when you interview somebody, I'm talking more about like interviewing somebody for a doc rather than doing research for a narrative film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're putting huge trust in you. Yeah. Um, that you're going to be fair and balanced and get everything right. Totally. Yeah. And, and especially with the work we do where I'm asking for their deepest, darkest, most emotional, um, retellings of, of things that have happened to them, uh, in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're trusting you not to get it wrong and to, and to get it correct in the spirit of, who they are people people are calling out you know get me right you know when you make that film get me right and there's a huge responsibility in that and i think i think there's this that same thing in telling movies about history yeah you know do you have an obligation or a personal obligation to kind of show them the film before it's released and say hey did we screw anything up here is this all accurate or um if if i think something's questionable yeah i will um, generally it's a terrible idea to show the subject of the movie. Cause then they're going to have a million ideas of what can make it yeah, better. Oh, yeah. They don't like the way their hair looks yeah. in this scene or whatever. And right. really it doesn't matter. <laughs> and you just need to get it released. And then everybody says, Oh, it's wonderful. And then right. they feel good about it. And they mm-hmm. say, oh, actually our hair looks wonderful. Now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I generally avoid doing that because I think, you know, everybody hates the way their voice sounds and right. how they look and sure. oh, I look fat and oh, I shouldn't have worn that shirt. <laughs> and why did I say it like that? And my grammar isn't correct. And uh. so, no, I don't. But if there's something that I feel like, you know, it's questionable and did I get this right? I will absolutely ask them. And if they're not comfortable with something, I will absolutely remove it. That's cool. Um, and I think that's that says a lot about you as a person and as a filmmaker. That, <laughs> well, that, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> My mother raised me yeah. well. <laughs> um, when you're filming, are you? So I know you try to stay. You're you're inspired by old time films, movies, uh, and te- with technology too. I mean, you're not using film. Film. You're using. We have. I mean, Dinner with yeah. was shot on film. It was. Yeah. How difficult was that? Because that has to be tremendous. I mean, I didn't do anything different. <laughs> okay. I mean the the. I mean, the pro- when you get a finely oiled, um, literally and figuratively, um, team that's shooting on film, there's not a huge amount of discernible difference 
in how difficult it is on set, honestly. Um, you know, there's some consideration to cost, right? You can't right. just roll and roll and roll. Um, but, you know, there's not a lot of time difference between, you know, taking out a, a CFast card and loading a new mag. Like, it's not that big of a difference. It's not that big of a deal. Editing, stuff like that. Well, is it depends how you edit, arduous. right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, the idea now of shooting on film and then editing on film would be you know, really committed. Um, but I think, you know, today when you, when you cut a, when you shoot on film and then you cut it, you scan it. Right. And then you cut the digital uh, file. And then if you're, you know, super dedicated, then you'll take the edit decision list back to the film, cut the film and then, go from there so you actually the 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 editing was just a proc the editing software was just a proxy so mm. then you go back to the film then you cut it then you're actually cutting the film. actually yeah, cutting yeah. the film actually gluing it together and wow. then you have a print of the movie um but i don't know if too many people do that these days um it's a pretty pretty tricky and um arduous workflow yeah we've actually taken to experimenting with shooting something digitally editing it digitally and then printing it to film. That's cool. And then scanning it. So basically rather than shooting, you know, 20 hours of film, scanning it all, editing it all, and then down to a 10 minute film and go back, we just print out 10 minutes. Yeah. And then, you know, you don't get all of the, it's, it's kind of an arguable thing because you're not capturing it on the day on film. You're not getting the benefit of the dynamic range that film would offer you. And there's a lot of things you lose, but, there are certain happy accidents that happen when you print a film and rescan it that that make the film that lend some yeah. of the um, character of film to uh, to the work, which I think is kind of cool. What is it about film that's more appealing to the eye? Like people, a lot of people, and myself included, would say like vinyl and analog recordings are more pleasing to the ear, even subconsciously. Mm. But no one, if you ask them why, they'll be like, oh, it sounds warmer. It's, you know, it's like a very vague kind of yeah. response. There's no clear cut evidence of why there is. At least I don't know of any. Yeah. Um, do you have any take on that? Is it a similar thing with film? Well, I think um, I, my, my actual feeling is that a certain suspension of disbelief is important. Mm. And film, I don't, I mean, you could you could say film looks better and it's warmer and it's more comfortable and softer. And I think all those things are true, but I think that what's more important is it looks less like reality, right? It's the same thing with like high frame rates, yeah. right? It looks like the news. It's like, we, we need it to not look real. We so need 24 it. is the standard. Anything above that is like tricking the eye or something. Well, well, so there's, there's a, uh, a principle called persistence of vision. Okay. So I think it's like once you get to 12 frames a second, it looks like it's moving. That's when the eyes tricked, or maybe it's 15 frames a second. Um, and yeah, the the standard, um, you know, motion picture camera shoots at 24 frames a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, a digital camera shoots at something very close, 23,976. Um and, you know, you have different formats in England. They shoot at different, you know, 25 frames a second, you know, different video cameras shoot at, at 30 or 29, or whatever. You know, you have crazy thing. People shooting movies at 60 frames a second. Right. But you're, you're just getting that many more frames per second. So the motion is, is sharper. Um, it's more fluid. And you are also receiving a lot of um, connotation with it in that, 
you watch Lord of the Rings, you know, the original Lord of the Rings, 24 yeah. frames a second, or old movies, 24 frames a second, mm-hmm. and you watch the news in 30 frames a second. Um, so, like, the more... it, it I, I think that the point is, is that it, this is, to me, the kind of movies I like to watch and the kind of movies I like to make is not an all-out war for realism. Right. I'm not after realism. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not after making somebody feel like they were there. Like right. that's not really the the total goal. Mm-hmm. Immersion, totally. Immersion, totally. Making someone feel as if the per the, feel like the person is feeling it, you know, relatability to that character, great. But you don't actually want them to say like, oh, sh- it, is what I'm watching, re- you know, right. real or not? Or like, you know, making them feel like it's literal reality, I right. don't think is the goal. I think the goal is to, is to draw the audience in and immerse them in the story and make mm. them feel something and to move them. And I think that, I think that some technology has gone too far in making it too realistic, yeah. um, too lifelike um, in that, that separation that makes movies softer and grainy and has some evidence of the craft of filmmaking is positive. It's the same thing when you go to a theater um, and you see the proscenium arts and you see the people around it. There's, there's something about that suspension of disbelief that actually is a good thing. Yeah. And you know, you know, you don't always want this like crazy VR experience that, that actually makes it harder to make people feel something in my personal opinion. And you could probably put a lot of people in the seat next to me that says that's bullshit. And you know, we, that's not, not accurate and yeah. VR people. But to me that, that separation is important. I was going to ask you if that's, I mean, that's clearly where it's headed, right? Like maybe people watching movies in the next 20 years are going to be watching it on headsets or something. I I hope not. Yeah. Um, I actually don't think so. I would bet money. That's not the way it's going to go. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, I think, (sighs) do you think, cause I would like to keep such a hard question and maintain movie movie, the movie experience. Cause I feel like that, maybe might not be around in a few decades and I, mean, I hope it does. Yeah. The, the question is like movie theaters. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love to keep movie theaters too, because you know, born in 1990, they're romantic to me. I'm not so naive as to think that that business model will always be successful. But to me, the, the essence of what is special about the movie theater is that it's a communal experience right? You're going out exactly. with strangers, sitting next to strangers right. who are in your community, who might have different political views from you. They're from a different class. They're from a different religion. They look different, whatever. And it's a time when everybody from the community can come together and be homo sapiens in the same room right. and laugh at the same time and cry at the same time and watch Fred Astaire dance at the same time <laughs> and walk out of the theater on air all at the same time, in the same place, and feel as one. Right. You can't do that when you're watching something in a headset. You don't right. get that part of it. And watching iTunes on your in your boxers yeah, on the couch or something. Totally. It's it just like same. yeah. I mean, that's just like passive. It's it's similar to reading a book. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with reading a book, but but you know, as time goes on and everything is at our fingertips experiences that bring us out of our shelves, out of our comfort shells, out of our comfort zones and out of our little bubbles and brings us together and reminds us that we are all descended from one ape six million years ago. (laughs) 
That's what I think is important. Mm. And you know what? Maybe it was movies in the 20th century. Maybe it'll be something else in the 21st or 22nd century. But I, I know that we need that. You know, certain times it was church. Yeah. You know, so like, I don't know what that is going to be for human beings going forward, but I know we need that. I know we need to come together and remind each other that we're all involved in the same human story. Yeah. That togetherness, whether it's a concert or a movie or something where you're together is a group of people enjoying something. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. And uh, yeah, it's people are more kind of like um, fractured, but they're behind screens most of the day. So they're not communicating as much. So it's nice to have those types of events. I guess the real question is, and it really says question whether you're a glass half full or half empty person is like, you know, is, are, are, is that, which we both can sit here and say, oh, yeah, that is important. Right. That is important. Is it something that's important that human beings, if they aren't forced to, or if it isn't part of social norms, won't do naturally? Or is it something that we will always be drawn towards, right? And yeah. it's like, you know, eating our vegetables. Like, you know, if we're given a Big Mac or a salad right. and nobody's watching <laughs> and there's no tomorrow, you eat the Big Mac, sure. right? And yeah. so, you know, if you just leave humans alone, you know, they become like the people in Wally. So I yeah. guess my question is, is like, do we have to, you know, do we have to fight for this because, right. you know, bringing people together and having that experience isn't a given, you know, it's not, it's not like we're going to naturally always do that. Right. You know, it's important to make a point of doing that. It's important. That ritual is important and it's not a given. Mm. And so I think a lot of us who believe in communal movie watching and, you know, I've, I've been reading the word co-watching, you know, um, that that's the important thing. And, you know, honestly, whether it's a movie or whether it's a concert or whether it's, um, you know, a a podcast on stage or whatever, it doesn't really matter to me. I love movies, but I know that those experiences are are very important to, you know, our longevity as a species. Mm. You can tell I'm reading a book about evolutionary (laughs) biology. (laughs) Um, Shorts. Is there a reason you stick to shorts? Um, Short movies are... Is it have anything to do at all with attention spans? Do you think attention spans are waning and more people? Maybe that's the future of movies, shorter movies. I think I think people are more impatient. Yeah, you know, I I, I hesitate to say that people have shorter attention spans, but I think people are more impatient, um, and they're and they're more they're more inundated with exactly. distractions. Yeah, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean it's. It's hard to keep people's attention. I mean, why we do mostly shorts is, you know, I think partly because you can make a really high quality short for a lot less money than you can make a really high quality feature film. Um, And we're committed to that quality. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's 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 shareable, right? Like, um, you know, you have a conversation with somebody in in the grocery store that you haven't seen in a long time. That conversation probably is going to last if it's a good one, maybe. 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. you know, and you walk away thinking about something or feeling something after that conversation. And I think there's a natural cadence in that, that short films fit into of like a short conversation with someone or, um, you know, a short experience, emotional experience that a three or four minute or five minute film can sort of like naturally, Mm. um, you know, make sense to people. But, you know, 
people are also binging Netflix from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So right. I have a hard time saying that people's attention spans are going by the wayside. But it's, it's certainly if you're going through the jungle of Facebook, sitting there and watching something for an hour and a half is going to be hard to convince someone to do. Definitely. I agree with you. Like even at the gas station, uh, you have a TV that's giving you information. You have Facebook. You're, there's just a constant stream of information that's being fed to people that it is difficult to, I think, you know, pull somebody away and say, hey, like pay attention to this for. But I, I see what you're saying, too. Like Netflix, yeah, like people could binge watch a series in a night. So it, I think yeah. it depends. Um, it's, it's about and, you know, it's it, there's a reason why binging happens at night. It says there's fewer distractions at night, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's, there's less going on. And like we really live in an attention economy, like the world's largest corporations. Yeah. They are all fighting for real estate on our phones right. and within our purviews. Like they just want our attention yeah. and they gamify our apps and everything around us to try to get our attention and keep our attention because if they have their attention, they can sell the attention to right. advertisers to get you to buy more stuff. And so it's I don't think that's people's attention spans are shorter. Yeah. It's just they're they're being millions of dollars are being spent on on me and you and everybody else to whip you away from every whatever you're paying attention to now to go pay attention to this other thing. Right. And then once you're over there, somebody's paying money to try and get you to go over there. Fire detergent or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. and the and the full ambition and and all of the science and all of the business and all of the great ideas and all these millions of dollars are being put towards us. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of really talented, smart people, myself included in this economy, that are just trying to get your attention <laughs> to sell something. <laughs> you know, when we're doing brand economy, we're just trying to say, hey, pay attention here for just a couple minutes and, right. you know, listen to this guy, couple minutes of your time, you know, and, and just this, you know, and, and because we want to sell you, you know, there's something to be sold. Mm -hmm. And that is the world we live in. Yeah. And even movies like, you know, people like, oh, are you ever, you know, branded content? You ever feel like you, you know, you sold out because you're making movies about boots or whatever. But like, you know, brand, you know, brand filmmaking, like it's just filmmaking. Like right. doesn't matter whether the brand is Charles Schwab or 20th Century Fox, right. you know, art and commerce have always been married to each other. So to me, so long as it's a good partnership and, you know, yeah. you can tell a story that's important, I don't care whether 20th Century Fox's logo on it or I'm working with my friends at Charles Schwab. To me, yeah. it's the story that matters. Definitely. And and uh, in feature films, I mean, uh, product placement has always been a, a huge moneymaker for those films as well. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I went to the, visited the Chart Cathedral, yeah. which is one of the most, um, you know, it's like one of the most incredible um, exhibits of uh, stained glass in the world. This, I think it's like a 12th century Gothic church. Mm. And I read about it in Joseph Campbell, Joseph Campbell's work. So I wanted to visit when I was in France and I went there and I got a tour by this amazing guy who was an expert on the church and uh, the cathedral. And he, he brought me to a window and he pointed to the bottom and he said, what do you think? The, there's a bunch of people standing there. I said, what do you think those people? And I look, who are those people? And they look and they look like they're making like pounding, like some with hammers and like shoes or something. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. They look like cobblers. He said, why do you think that's there? And I said, are they, was this their pew? You know, it was like aligned with a pew. Is this yeah. where they sat? And he said, no, they sponsored the window. 
okay. You know, so this yeah. is this is like 800 or more years old. You know, that's branded content. Yeah. You know, in, in stained glass. So it's like, you know, the, the idea that pure, the pure expression of art without the help of, of commerce or or patrons of the art is um, has never occurred nor nor would i want to be involved with that i think i think that tension is important yeah um i wanted to say one thing about attention spans too i think nowadays content is is um you get it instantly there's Mm. no it's instant gratification is the word i was looking for back in my day like when i was going on a (laughs) date or something i had a drive to blockbuster when I was in high school and yeah. rent a videotape. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then there was that whole process of then we have to buy popcorn, like if we were watching it at home. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and people who were born a hundred years ago would laugh yeah. that we talk about the old <laughs> days of right. driving to Blockbuster to rent a videotape. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, imagine, imagine thinking about, you know, we want to, you want to build a house thinking about like chopping down a tree to get that two by four. You know, I, th- I think we're on this, we're, we're, we're on such a, we're on such a um, just impossible momentum of convenience. Mm-hmm. We just want we we think things right used to be so inconvenient. <laughs> I mean, things used to be really horribly. I mean, just you know, you look at like these like renderings of cavemen, and like they have short hair. And I'm like, God, how would you even cut your hair? You know, like, <laughs> right. you, like you're doing it with like how are you, how are they yeah. even cutting their hair? You know, or like you know, obviously it's a drawing of a caveman. Mm-hmm. Maybe they had long hair. But but I mean things I think things for human beings were so hard and so inconvenient for so long that we have just been trying to make things as convenient as possible and I, we've we have gone too far you know this is yeah. me and my my Nova Scotia we've gone too <laughs> things are too convenient yeah. but I th- I think I think in many ways they are like there's some you know just as a storyteller. You can't just dive right into the the happy, you know, the ending. Like you need the struggle. Right. Like you need the conflict. That's what gives you the payoff. Yeah, yeah like you yeah. can't have the payoff without the plan and the hard work and like thinking, oh, maybe this isn't gonna work out, and like, you know, maybe maybe I'm not gonna be able to get a, you know, uh, a VHS at block. Maybe the movie won't be there. Maybe I'll have to choose a different movie, and right. will I pick the right one or whatever? You know, rather than just being like, oh, let's just, you know, you pick it on Netflix. Boom, boom, it's right there yeah. or whatever. I think things are too convenient and it and it and it appeals to the worst of of us my myself included it's unavoidable I postmated coffee to my house this morning and it's like you know yeah that that's too convenient yeah that's too convenient 100% well probably I don't know 50 years or maybe sooner they'll just be robots fanning us we won't have to work and they'll just do everything I mean you know they'll it's, make the movies and I think Wally is you know I mentioned <laughs> Wally I, I you it's funny but like you know I think if we if if we continue on this just thunderous path towards convenience. I think Wally is a very plausible future where mm. we're just all like 600 pounds, spineless blobs and floating chairs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, I can see that, you know, it's supposed to be funny, but it's like, you know, it's not that far from the truth yeah. <laughs> or what could be. Yeah. Um, uh, what are you working on now? Do you have any projects in the works that yeah. you can talk about? Um, Totally, yeah. We have we have a project um, called "That's My Jazz," that's a short film that we made about a man named Milt Milton Abel uh, Jr., who is one of the world's best pastry chefs. 
And it's a short film about, it's a father-son story about him, his career as a chef, and, um, and his father's career as a Kansas City jazz legend. Interesting. And so it's a movie about the intersection between jazz and pastry, which is a pretty delicious thing to make a film about. Interesting. And it's also kind of a sunrise sunset story where, you know, as he as he rose to greatness as a chef, he kind of missed the last part of his dad's life, which I think is a you know, a really relatable story that um it was a real pleasure to tell. So we're just you know, at the beginning of um, going out to festivals and seeing what's going to happen there. And then hopefully we get that release. So I'm excited about that. And then, um, you know, we're constantly making all kinds of exciting films for our clients and companies we're working for, developing a few feature films. Nice. Um, some documentaries, some scripted, and, um, you know, trying to keep up with it all. Awesome. Anything in the works about a magician? <laughs> Uh, you know, people have asked me that okay. a lot. You know, the only one that I, I did work on a short, I was going to do a short um, musical okay. that uh, had magic at the center of it, but I never, you know, it never took off. I could never get it written properly. It never transpired, but maybe someday I'll return to that. Yeah, man. Dust that idea off and <laughs> make Abra it happen. Abracadabra there. Yeah. there. <laughs> um, lastly, because I know you got a split, is sure. there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask? Anything you wanted to do? No, approach? I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, hopefully it, there's something interesting in there for your audience. No, I think it was great. I had a blast. Great. Thanks for inviting right. me. Thanks, Ben. Okay, talk Bye. to you soon.